many weeks ago, and here we land on Easter Sunday on this important passage. Now, uh, most of you are aware that uh, and maybe have read some of these books that were published not that long ago that were written to defend the bodily resurrection of Christ. And the purpose of those books was to ask and answer this question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And um, the books then tried to give some evidence, like they were building a case for the fact that, that Jesus really did come out of the tomb. I was looking at one of those books and just notice a couple of the chapter titles, the medical evidence, why Jesus had to be resurrected rather than resuscitated. Another chapter, the evidence of the missing body was the tomb really empty. The evidence of Jesus's post resurrection appearances. Can you trust the eyewitness accounts? The circumstantial evidence. Are there any supporting facts about the resurrection? So so the hope of the books were to build the sort of uh, scientific or factual case for the bodily resurrection of Christ. And that is, as you read through the book, you would say, well, gosh, all those questions got answered. And the hope then is then you would say, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to follow after Jesus because I know he actually uh, came out of the tomb. And all those those books serve a, a good purpose. I've been leading people through the Gospel of John through many years. And um, I've had very few questions about the evidence for the resurrection. But I've had a lot of questions about the effect of the resurrection. I haven't had that many people ask about evidence. They've been asking more questions that are about the effect. In, in other words, when, when, when I've arrived at John chapter 20, here are a couple of the responses that I've gotten that are common. Uh, oh, Paul, I'm, I'm good with the resurrection. I mean, people believe different things. I'm glad that helps you. That'd be a pretty common response. Or... About a year ago, I got this from uh, a young lady. She and her fiance were were meeting with me for marriage counseling. And I said, well, I'm not going to give you marriage counseling. I'm just going to take you through the gospel of John. And uh, that was the best marriage counseling I could have given them. And this is what she said. It's wonderful. Jesus came back from the dead. I think that, too. But I still believe in parts of Hinduism and Buddhism. And so it really wasn't a matter of, 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 of scientific or sort of factual evidence. That's the, the conversations I get in about the resurrection are, are not primarily over the external evidence, but about this internal personal law that is at work within most of us that says something like this. Truth is defined as what I find helpful and acceptable. Truth is defined. I'm defining truth by what I find helpful and, and acceptable. So I'm, I'm happy to sit down and talk to you, but I'm just processing that information through that kind of greed. Uh, OK, great. That maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't. But but the way I try to figure that piece of information out is maybe it happened. Is it helpful to me? Yeah. OK, I take it. Is it not that helpful to me? Okay, maybe it happened. It's just not that helpful. And I just sort of shuttle it off to the side. 
And so whether Jesus really rose from the tomb isn't just the, the primary issue. The, the primary issue in the folks that I talk with, and I think probably many that you would talk to, is, is the resurrection actually helpful to me? And, of course, the answer to that question is yes, it is. And so we want to try to get to that, answering that question this morning in our text. We've seen through the study of John, John has been building a case. We started in John chapter 1, and he's just been building this case for the necessity and importance of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so he, he's been, as I said, he's been trying to see, help you see two things. He's seen Jesus. He believes in Jesus. But then he backs all the way up and he says, okay, let me just take you through the life of Jesus. And I'm going to just bring these people into Jesus' life. And here's what I want you to see in each of these sort of um, accounts. I want you to see yourself. In the account, I want you to see Jesus in the account. So almost every chapter, he unfolds one character after another that encounters Jesus. And you could say, hey, that would be the kind of question I would ask. I would come at Jesus in that same way. And it's meant to draw you into the story and then ask, well, how does Jesus respond to that particular person? John's goal to expose you to yourself. And then to expose you to Jesus. And John does this so well. John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, John is, John is the apostle writing, but he's writing about John the Baptist who baptizes Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, you remember, he sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so just in that statement, John is trying to help orient you to you and to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where are you in that, in that statement? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where are you in that statement? You're a sinner. Where is Jesus? He's the Savior. He's going to take. You've got a problem. He's the person who's going to take away that problem. John chapter three, Nicodemus, a very powerful religious and political leader. He comes to Jesus and Jesus tells this very powerful political and religious man, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He looks at the most powerful person in that culture and he says, you know what? You're defective. I mean, I know you have all the, the, the accolades of the culture. And I also know you have all the religious accolades. You're, you're very popular and powerful out in society. And then when you walk into the church, you're also very popular and powerful. But I'm telling you, a little peasant preacher, I'm looking at those things and saying, you're still defective. You've done it all, Nicodemus. It's just not good enough. It's like you need a whole new birth. You need to be born again. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you believe in me, you can have eternal life. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus comes to this woman who has come out from the town by herself. She's come out because she's embarrassed of her reputation. She's invested in her entire life in sex and relationships that are failing. Jesus knows this. Jesus exposes this woman to her faults in a very unusual passage. 
And so when we look at this passage, Jesus is looking at the woman and Jesus is looking at you, perhaps, and saying, see, you're investing yourself in sex. You're investing yourself in some kind of physical pleasure. And yes, it satisfies just for a moment, but then it's so fleeting. It just passes away like a like a vapor and then you're left and you're still thirsty and you keep taking your cup back to that same well saying, well, maybe I just didn't get the right person. If I if I ditch that person and I come over and grab that person, then they're finally going to be satisfying. And Jesus says, you're never going to be satisfied. You're never you're always going to be thirsty unless you come to me. Whoever drinks from me, Jesus says, will never thirst again. John chapter 5, the paralyzed man at the pool. He's 38. He's been at the pool for 38 years. And there was this uh, this um, understanding that as the pool bubbled up, the, the crippled man, if the first crippled person who got into the pool would be healed. And Jesus comes to the man, and John is bringing Jesus and this man together for us to see, you're crippled. You're defective. You can't, you can't, Get yourself into the pool, and even when you get your, if you got yourself in, it wouldn't be what you want. And and you look at me. Remember, the the man is looking at Jesus, and he says, "Jesus, you're here to help me. What? Get into the pool." <laughs> he has no idea who he's looking at. He's saying, "Jesus, Almighty God, Creator, can you help me get in the pool?" And so John is bringing this story saying, see, you, you're, you're doing the same thing. You're, you're saying, oh, here's a pool. Here's a, here's a political structure. Here's a country. Here's a person. Here's a, a position. Here's a, a woman. Here's a family. Here's a house with a, uh, a dog that stays in the yard. Here's whatever I want. And if I can just get into that pool, then finally I will have arrived. And Jesus, even Jesus comes to you and you say, Jesus, I believe in you that you can get me into that pool. And he has no desire to get you into that pool, perhaps. Jesus can look at that kind of person and make them well. But he looks at that person first and says, do you really want to get well? John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. John is trying to help you see you have a physical appetite. It doesn't matter how much you eat today at lunch. And somebody's going to walk home and go, man, I'm stuffed. I can't eat another bite. Six o'clock, man, I'm starving. I feel like I didn't eat anything. That happens to all of us. You have a physical appetite that never gets full. You have to keep coming back. And Jesus fills up the crowd of 5,000. And the next day they said, hey, you know, we're still hungry. And he says, see that hunger? Do you you feel that hunger? That's an internal spiritual hunger that's never going to be filled by the world. If you look at me, I am the, what does he say? I'm the bread of life. John chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. And he has this conversation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And Jesus says, whether you have bad eyes or good eyes, when you live apart from God, you're blind. And to these two people, the the poor beggar, the, the, the popular, powerful Pharisees, he says, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd, a shepherd 
has sheep. Who are you? You're the sheep. You're the dumb sheep. We talked about this several weeks ago. You remember how dumb a sheep can be? Got his head down, eating, eating, coming to the edge of a long, long drop, eats himself right off the cliff. Man, that's a good last bite. And they're flying down the cliff. So stupid, they cannot lift their head up and see what's going on around there. They're so focused on what's right in, right in front of them, they walk right into danger. And not only do sheep walk into danger, they have all kinds of predators coming for them. And Jesus says it's the same thing. You have an enemy. You're not only stupid, you have an enemy. And you're an easy target. And that enemy has come to kill and steal and destroy But I'm a good shepherd. I have come to give life. And you know when you found the good shepherd because the good shepherd will lay his life down for the sheep. John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Apart from Jesus, you're as dead as a man in a tomb. Oh, you may be walking around. You can laugh and smile and drive a nice car. But if you don't have Jesus, you're dead. And Jesus looks at you, looks at me, looks at Lazarus and says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, John, when you get to John chapter 20, John is carrying all this freight into John chapter 20. It's meant to get to John chapter 20 is to read all these stories and have all this freight behind you. So when you get to John chapter 20, you arrive at this empty tomb in a sense of desperation. You you say, look, I'm sinful. I'm defective. I'm thirsty. I'm crippled. I'm hungry. I'm blind. I'm dumb. I'm deaf. And, and if by the time you arrive at John chapter 20, you, you understand your desperate condition and you're at least looking towards Jesus as the, the possible answer, then maybe you'll see Jesus today. But if by the time you arrive at John chapter 20 and you don't have a sense of your desperate condition, you can arrive at the resurrection and just yawn. Why? It just doesn't matter to you. It doesn't matter to you because you just can't see yourself in these kinds of pictures that John has laid out for you. And so as we come to John chapter 20, the the very first question I want you to consider as you sit here this morning is, as as I come to this tomb, what's my what's what's my current condition? Am I desperate? Are you coming desperately? Are you coming maybe just out of curiosity? Are are you, you coming bored? Are you coming resistantly? When you're just here because your mom drug you, your friends ask you to come, it's Easter, get a free meal. But really, this is the part where you don't like. I mean, you don't want John or some preacher you've never met to come up and say, hey, you're dumb. You're dead. You're sinful. You're blind. You're thirsty. You're hungry. Nobody likes that. 
I mean, I thought this was Easter. Let's get a nice, good sermon going on here. But you see, when you, when you arrive at the empty tomb, if you don't understand your current condition, you're never going to see Jesus. You're just going to look at John chapter 20 and go, oh, yeah, I mean, that works for you. Glad it's working for you. But it's just not working for me because I don't really understand and I really can't assess my current condition. And John has done that for us. Well, this morning, I just want to briefly examine these three characters John brings to the empty tomb. We see them, Mary, Peter, and John. And what we might learn from these three characters for ourselves. John bringing in these characters because they actually arrived, but also bringing them in because he knows you're going to come to the empty tomb in a similar way. And what can you learn First, we'll begin with Mary. We know from Luke chapter 8 that Jesus cast out seven demons from Mary. Now, whether that's an actual number or that's a representative number, we don't know. Maybe it's just Luke's way of saying, hey, you know what, Mary? She was just totally messed up. And Jesus healed her. And so she comes. She comes desperately looking for Jesus in some way. And notice in verse 1, and John loves to use this double meaning, it was, it was still dark. You know, we've said this a number of times, how John uses that physical reality to also point to a spiritual reality. When Nicodemus, the most powerful political and religious man, when he comes to Jesus, what time was it? It was night. It was dark. He was in the dark. He didn't know anything about Jesus. When Judas betrayed Jesus and left the upper room, when was it? It was at night. It was in the dark. Judas was leaving the light and he was going into the dark. And here Mary's coming to the tomb. She hasn't yet seen Jesus. And it is physically dark, but it's also spiritually dark for Mary. And notice uh, two things. She, She comes... Perhaps the light's coming up a little bit. It's right before dawn and Mary comes to the tomb and John says that she sees the stone that it's been rolled away and she she runs back to tell the disciples. And I think the first thing to notice here is that that Mary didn't believe in the resurrection in the beginning. And I say that to say she wasn't gullible. I think sometimes you can think the people in the Bible, well, they weren't that smart. I mean, they weren't scientifically aware like we are aware. And so they're like dumb people who would be easily caught into things that we would. We're just sophisticated now. We don't we don't easily buy in. Well, Mary didn't easily buy in. She wasn't gullible. This didn't somebody coming out of the tomb doesn't fit into anyone's worldview. It doesn't matter when you lived. And so she comes and she's not she's not some poor, uneducated, gullible woman. She understands that people don't come out of the. The grave, and so she's not easily taken in. And the second thing, this I found this fascinating. Her unbelief in the resurrection creates an understandable but false counterbelief. Let me say that again. Her unbelief in the resurrection creates an understandable but false counterbelief. She she makes an observation. She sees the stone is rolled away. She processes what she thinks. She she puts it in through the grid of her worldview. She draws a, a conclusion and then she proceeds to inform other people of her beliefs. Just like you and I would. 
We see some piece of information. We put it through our worldview. We put it through our grid. And then we say, this is what I believe. I'm, I'm formulating a belief here. And then I'm going to go tell other people. And it's exactly what Mary does. And she believes that somebody has stolen Jesus' body. It's understandable. It's just wrong. She sees something. And she doesn't believe in the resurrection, but she believes that, hey, it's possible that Jesus's body was stolen. And I just laughed out loud when I thought about Mary doing this, because so often I see people do it. I've done it myself at an earlier age. Just notice in the text how often she spews out her unbelief and her counter false belief. The first thing she does is she comes back to Peter and John and she says, She's going to give him her belief. I went there. I saw the stone rolled away. Somebody stole Jesus's body and then they run out. So that's the first person. Then the second person, she comes back to the tomb and she comes to the angels and she says to an angel, here's what I know. Somebody stole Jesus's body. So she's just spewing out her unbelief. And what was so fascinating is before she sees Jesus, who she thinks is a gardener, she tells Jesus that she thinks somebody stole Jesus' body. Hey, Jesus, guess what? Somebody stole your body. So she sees something. She doesn't see what really she should see. And she forms this understandable but false counterbelief. And then she decides she's going to tell everybody about what she knows. How often we've seen this through John's gospel. That that mankind has an insatiable desire to run up to Jesus and tell Jesus who he is. I've just got to come to God and I've got to make sure God understands that this is who he is and this is who he can be and this is who he can't be. It's, it's like the clay telling the potter, hey, this is what you need to do with me. And I wonder if it's possible for you that, that maybe you're sitting here, you've taken one observation about Jesus. And you've come to an understandable but wrong counter belief. You've seen something in your lifetime, you've taken that observation, and then you just put it through your own grid, and it's understandable, but it's, it's not right. And is it possible that you, you're like Mary, you have this counterbelief, and you tell other people this counterbelief like it's fact, and you even tell God who he can and can't be? Is it possible that you're sitting here and you you've informed God of who he can be and who he can't be? Mary would understand that. I wonder, is it is your starting point for what you know to be true? You. Or is your starting point for what you know to be true outside of you? The Bible states the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. 
You see, so often when I get with people and I get them to John chapter 20, their starting point for truth is still themselves. And if it seems to work for themselves, fine. And if it doesn't, fine. So we need to ask, is your starting point for truth outside of yourself or are you the starting point? You're the grid for all truth to pass through. What, what turns Mary's misinformation campaign totally around? One word. Mary. When you read this, you're, you're supposed to. John wants you to go back to John chapter 10. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. He's going to lead them out of darkness, which is what Mary's in. His sheep follow him because they know his voice. And Mary believes. She runs back a second time. I've seen the Lord. And Jesus could have at this point said to her the same thing he says a few verses later to Thomas. Mary, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, we'll talk more about this uh, next week, but but Jesus understands that people, millions of people, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people uh, of the most unlikely backgrounds and caliber are going to come and they're going to come and meet Jesus. And they're going to say, I heard him call my voice. And it was as real as it was for Mary. Now, when does that happen? The Apostle Paul tells us God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. He's not counting men's sin against them. And God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors. It's though God were making his appeal through us and we implore you to be reconciled to God. And so it's possible that this could be the day that through this message and this messenger that you're hearing God say your name. You have some sense internally. This is true. This is what I've been looking for. I can't necessarily tell the person that I'm here with, but I'm like the paralyzed man. I'm like the adulterous woman. I'm like the dumb sheep. I, I know that. And I sense just from listening to this guy that Jesus is doing something inside saying, calling your name. Peter and John are the two other characters that John brings to the tomb. And I think this is a very helpful passage about the beginning of belief. Mary knows exactly where to find Peter and John. And gosh, I would love to know the content of their conversation prior to her arrival. Wouldn't you? Here they are. It's a Sunday morning. They're together. Presumably in John's house, but I mean, wherever they are. And what are they saying right before Mary comes in? 
I mean, maybe John is saying, Peter, I can't go to sleep. I haven't slept in, you know, 48 hours because I was there at the cross. I'm, I'm watching Jesus. And, and as soon as I drift up, I, I cannot stop the nightmares of, of what he's saying and the moans and the darkness. I, I just can't stop it. So I wake up and can you help me? Can, is there anything you can do? Peter, can you help me? Well, do you think Peter's very helpful here? Hey, I can't go to sleep either. Roosters crowing all over Jerusalem all the time. I mean, it is dawn. What, what, what were they saying right at this moment? Well, Mary burst into their conversation. And, and I'm guessing they're out the door before she can finish her single sentence. She's misinforming them. <laughs> now, they hear the empty tomb. Maybe they don't hear, somebody stole the body. And I don't know why, but John wants people 2,000 years later to know he could beat Peter in a foot race. I mean, I don't know why. I mean, there's a lot. It's funny to read the commentaries. It means John was more important and all that. I mean, I don't know. I don't think so. I think John just, you know, he's a guy. <laughs> That's all I can assume. And maybe the Peter gets the best of him because he's a little more courageous. He runs into the tomb. So they both have a little star to hang on their chest. Well, they come and they see the same thing. And look, look at this, this very, these very fascinating verses. Verse 6. Simon Peter came following John. He goes into the tomb. He sees the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which Jesus had, had been on Jesus' head. Not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, comes in. He saw. He believed. But then notice verse 9. Peter comes in. He sees. We don't know what the state of his soul is here, what he thinks. John comes in, and John records, I saw and I believed. But then notice verse 9. For as yet, they, or in the first person, we did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John came and believed and then makes this commentary. But see, we didn't understand everything yet. Why the emphasis on the linen cloth, on the grave clothes? It's mentioned several times in these verses. I mean, if you've been reading through the Gospel of John, why would there be an emphasis on this resurrection on the grave clothes? Why? To compare it and contrast it to Lazarus. You see, Lazarus had come back from the dead, right? We all remember he comes out of the tomb and what has he got on? Not a new suit. He's wrapped in his grave clothes. And so John wants to make sure every reader knows this coming back is different than that coming back. And so he's trying to emphasize, he's helping us remember this giant story that's happening, happening here. Jesus' resurrection is different than, than Lazarus. John eleven forty four. Lazarus came out, his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. See, see when Lazarus came back from the death, from death, Poor Lazarus 
had to do it again. I mean, it kind of feels neat to be Lazarus, right, in chapter 11. But once you're dead, I doubt you want to do that one more time. But Lazarus gets to die twice. Unlike Lazarus, Jesus is never going back to the tomb. When Jesus comes out of the tomb, he left the linen cloth behind because Jesus didn't come back from the dead. He conquered death. And there's a big difference between those two things. I want you to hear John. I want you to hear Jesus clearly say, one day you're going to be in a tomb. I know there's a lot of young people here. And it feels like that day's a long way away. But in one day, it's going to be your day. And so Jesus coming out of the tomb, it matters. It matters to you. Why I got this job, I do not know. But when I was after my first year in college, I came home and I started mowing grass. And some guy at a graveyard needed help mowing grass. So I started mowing grass for the graveyard, and pretty soon I was digging graves at the graveyard. And I got to work one day, and he said, hey, you need to do some painting. Oh, great. Tired of mowing grass and tired of digging graves. Let's go in uh, the little crypt area. Mm -mm. Big marble thing off, right? Mr. Johnson is laying on one side. Mrs. Johnson's going to be inserted later today. When you look into the tomb, it's just gray cement. So we like to paint it white. looks nice when you look in. Yeah, how does that get done, Mr. Smith? Yeah, people like you, Paul, crawl in there and paint it. So there I am, a little paintbrush laying in the tomb. Mr. Johnson laying next to me. I'm just painting. Thankfully, I could crawl back out. But one day I won't be able to. One day you won't be able to. It's really, it really matters what you think about the resurrection. It is factually true. But it also really matters what you think about the resurrection. The Apostle John, let's get back to him just for a moment. He, he's, he's seen this. And maybe he helped unwrap Lazarus from the tomb. Or from his grave clothes. And he now sees these grave clothes. And he sees that, hey, there's, there's something different here. These are left behind and so, although I don't see everything, this is, this is the important part about the beginning of belief. Even though I don't see everything, I don't know everything about Scripture. I know enough about myself, and I know enough about Jesus to say, I believe. One commentator says this, the word believe indicates a breakthrough of a new beginning. 
John's understanding is still lacking. Oh, I'm so glad he said that. Yet a new certainty has taken hold of the disciple. See, see maybe the commentary describes you. you your, your understanding is still lacking. But, but there's been a, a breakthrough. You can see enough of yourself to know you're not going to cut it. And you can see enough of Jesus to say, I'm just going to trust in him. That's just the beginning of belief. You don't have to know, thankfully, all of the Bible. You can just know enough about yourself and enough about Jesus, and that can be genuine belief. Let me close just with a word from John Piper as he preached on this sermon. If you think this does not matter to you, remember those who are in Christ will be raised with him. Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the same power that enables Jesus to subject all creation to himself. If you belong to Jesus by faith, you will receive a body like his, which will be suited to see him, to enjoy him, and finally enter into a new heavens and new earth where you will spend eternity admiring God and all that he has made. And this world that you love so much compared to that one will be like a candle compared to to the sun. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, oh, how thankful we are for Nicodemus, for the woman at the well, for the man born blind, for the pompous Pharisee, for Lazarus, for sheep. For Mary, for Peter, for John, and for your word here 2,000 years later. For help us, help us to see ourselves. Help us to see you. And, and I pray particularly for those people who may just be right at the beginning. That they could just see themselves enough and see you enough. And, and they would believe. They would trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.